a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 88 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman, and with me like a banther with every Tuscan Raider in the Jutland, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. What's going on? We continue our coverage somewhat off of our Kenobi coverage last time. Hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, we're still staying on a little Tatooine adventure here, you know? Because here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time. Is there an ongoing Star Wars comic? Yes. Or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Dark Horse comic Star Wars Outlander by Tim Truman. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. And this is a story that can be found in a number of places. You can find this most recently in the Star Wars Omnibus Emissaries and Assassins, which was released in 2009. It was released as the Outlander Trade Paperback in 2001. And this storyline is the first to have been released after the release of The Phantom Menace in theaters. It is individual issues numbers 7 through 12 of what eventually is called Republic, the first Star Wars ongoing series from Dark Horse, the second ever, of course, because of the Marvel series. And if you're looking for this in individual issues, there is one thing a little bit weird about it. Uh, this is not just you having issues, nor is it a matter of multiple printings or anything like that. But if you're picking them up, the first two issues, um, they all say Star Wars and an Outlander underneath, like the Outlander subtitle is down at the bottom. It's actually Outlander, The Exile of Sharad Het. It's the full title. But if you look at what? the book, Yeah, that's the entire title of the I not aware of this. No shit. Huh. So uh, it's Outlander, The Exile of Sharad Het is the way the title is listed on the inside cover of all of the individual issues. On the front cover of the first two issues, issues seven and eight, basically, of Republic, it says up in the corner, Outlander, one of six. Then Outlander... Two of six. This is when they changed their mind, which they eventually changed back again later. This is when they changed their mind and decided, no, we're going to go with the name of the storyline, but the number of the overall series. So by the time you get to issue number three, it is switched, and now it says Outlander 9, 10, 11, and 12. Because there are issues 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Republic slash ongoing Star Wars, and Outlander happens to just be the storyline name. We know, of course, that fairly recently... They've turned around again and said, no, 
some of these stories are getting to the point where they're too unwieldy. People won't necessarily jump in if they find that the numbers are, you know, up in the teens or the 20s or the 30s or something. So we're going to go back to giving them just the storyline numbers now and confuse people, perhaps. Uh, this is where they undid, or I guess this is where they did what they've recently undone back in 99. This is when they decided, well, let's just make an ongoing Star Wars comic. Wow. Because that, that, that's the part about all this, this going back that really frustrates me because, you know, you just mentioned that it's the Republic line. But at this point, it's not. It's, it's not Republic yet. It is literally just Star Wars and it is ongoing. Th- that is just so irksome that, that when they market this new one, they're pretending that Dark Times is not still the same comic series and that it's not continuing. From I mean, why do they even pretend to continue over? I mean in that regards when it comes from Republic to dark times. I mean, it just seems so idiotic to do continue that joke that dark times is number 100 of our ongoing star Wars comic that is now reaching issue number three, because we're advertising the heck out of it right now. Wait, what that just, I don't know. It's like, well, you did all this work, but we just, we're just not going to pretend that that work happened. We're only counting this new stuff. Oh wait, that's a George Lucas model. Carry on. Now, as is our tradition here, we like to give you a quick non-spoiler, spoilery moment here for those of you that are a little spoiler timid. Come on, join the bus. There's a lot of good stuff with the spoilers. But don't worry, we'll give you the quick uh, little Tarkin warning there right before we jump into it. You know, evacuate. Not yet. Wait till he says it. This definitely makes for a strange setup for this comic. This comic... It's set after The Phantom Menace. It is, in some ways, a continuation that we got from Prelude to Rebellion because we see Ki Animundi going back to Tatooine, and there are some connections to that when he, for instance, talks to Jabba the Hutt briefly and his reservations, perhaps, about going in the first place. It winds up setting up, though, of course, we didn't know it at the time, certainly the writer didn't know it at the time, setting up some of the things that will come to fruition in Star Wars Legacy much later, and some of the things that will come to fruition uh, later in publishing terms, but earlier chronologically within the span of the Kenobi novel that we recently talked about here. But this particular one has an unusual creative team. First off, it is Tim Truman writing. We're used to Republic being John Ostrander. This is not. Uh, early on in the series, Tim Truman did write quite a bit around this era of Star Wars. Also, though, the series, at least this six-issue arc of the series goes through some major artistic changes as it goes along. It starts out with Tom Rainey and Rod Pereira, I believe is how you pronounce his name, doing the pencils. Okay, so issue number one is those two. You get to issue number two, and it has switched to Rick Leonardi. Rick Leonardi is still doing the art all the way up through issue number ten, or in this case, part four out of six, once, though, we get to issue numbers 11 and 12, the more uh, action-heavy ones, it is Al Rio doing the penciling. So you have three different penciling teams just in the span of six individual issues. It's a little bit odd in that sense, but unlike what we see in, say, gosh, Knight Errant or Knights of the Old Republic, when the artistic team changes here, there's really not that much of a difference in what we're seeing. I mean, you can tell... It's a little bit jarring because going from the first to the second team, it seems like a little bit of the uh, detail is lost, and then it sort of comes back once we get to Al Rio as the third artist on the series, or the third uh, 
group of artists because the first one is a pair of artists, but it doesn't throw you out of the story the way that many Star Wars tales do whenever you wind up with artists changing and uh, the complete style shifting in the middle of a story. Well, see, I did have an issue with it. I, I, I was going to complain about that being the continuity of the art because there are moments where you literally turn the page and the character's whole outfit is different. Uh, what he's wearing is different. Like there's a scene where on, on Coruscant where Kai is standing and overlooking and he's got a braided Pharaoh style goatee where just a second ago at its longest was the same length straight. It's like, wait, wait, what do you put extensions in that thing? Uh, there's a scene later where he's on the uh, the, the little Tuscan or the Jabba's sand barge and he's got his little mask and stuff and his hoodie and he flips over and he's got the lightsaber held out and he's got the hoodie up. And then in the next scene, he's standing there and he's got the little Kukruk hat on with the whole Jedi robe off and yet he's still holding uh-huh. the pose. And, and you know what, what? What's weird about that one, and that was something that I noticed too at the is it at the end of issue two is what you're talking about where he's in the full garb with the mask and the hoodie up and everything standing off against Jabba's goons on the little skip. It's the beginning of the next issue when he's facing off with them with the Kukruk style hat on, no mask. Uh, weirdly enough, that is... Actually, hang on. Actually, I... That I I didn't even realize this. I was about to say that w- the weird thing about that is that it's the same artist. It actually isn't. I think my artist rundown is off. Issue one is Tom Rainey and Rob Pereira. Okay. Issue two is Rick Leonardi, and then that weird switch happens because it's actually it's not Rick Leonardi for part three. It's Rob Pereira on his own. So it's actually four creative teams technically. Then it goes back to Leonardi for part four before going to Al Rio for five and six. So what you've got there is probably two issues simultaneously being drawn and the artist not knowing what each other is doing. The only time that the art really jarred me, though, was when you first get to page one of issue number two and you see Keanu Mundy standing on top uh, waiting to take off from Coruscant. And all of a sudden, the detail that was present in the previous issue just isn't there. Yeah, like all the little lines, and that that was that was the first thing I noticed because that was when his his beard suddenly became tied up amongst itself. Um, little things that kind of drove me nuts because okay, this is the first story that came out after Episode One, but it very much feels like it was all done before because there was no clue what was coming. It seems like like you know you get the reference to. Uh, Yoda training Kai, you know, I was your Padawan and things like that. Uh, and the dark woman, and they're still calling her the dark woman. They're going out of their way to explain that she's the dark woman, but she has a name and why she hasn't been around. It's like, wh- why is this character being shoved on us? You know, I mean, that was a weird moment for me. Um, that for me, the lack of continuity throughout the comic, which we'll, we'll explain more once we get into the spoiler part, uh, really just kind of threw it off i did enjoy though and i do enjoy this comic in the aspect of being an origin story uh i, I see it as the origin story of asherard het who as nathan had mentioned there uh you know has ties into legacy which we've talked about in past episodes with uh darth crayot and i am dropping that spoiler only because uh we have mentioned it on previous episodes as well but I like that character, and this is his beginning in the comic runs. Um, so I, I like where we're going to go with him, and it's in this continued series. By continued, I mean in the later Star Wars Republic line. We'll see him more. Um, but 
by the end of all this, it, it kind of becomes more his tale. And for that, this always has a spot in my must-read list. Uh, it's not a must-read, but I feel to get the most out of your EU, you must read this one too. Um, it's got some really cool stuff in there. There is a lot of stuff, though, that as we get into the spoiler stuff, I'm going to be nitpicking about. Because while it is one that I feel like I must read, it's also got a stuff in there that, that drives me up a wall. A lot of retcon happiness coming this way. Like, wait, we're not really going to work with that. Uh, you know, Pablo had uh, tweeted back when we were talking about reading through this about how, you know, uh-oh, a uh, f- force using lightsaber welding Aurora Singh. Uh, in the Clone Wars series, George decided last minute he didn't want Singh to be a Force-sensitive anymore. And everyone was like, wait, whoa, uh, we've already established that she is and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I remember like this was one of those moments where, uh, you know, as an EU fan, we were like, can you stop taking EU things and then completely changing them from what they were to the point that these stories don't work? And I mean, they just got done doing like four or five of them. And so Aurora Singh was another one. And everybody's just like, oh, you know, face palm. Here we go again. And they were crafty with it. And the way they went about it was, well, we're going to say that she's no longer force sensitive, but we're just not going to have her using it. We're not going to actually physically say one way or the other whether she is or isn't. You're just not going to see her welding a lightsaber and doing incredible force jumps and things like that on the show. And so in a sense, they dodged the bullet because they never addressed it. So, you know, you can take the official... George Lucas standpoint with what he told the crew and say, no, she's not a force sensitive, which is kind of how I took the tweet from Pablo, or you can look at it how I'm looking at it. No harm, no foul. I mean, yeah, Lucas didn't intend for her to be one, but Lucas also didn't go out of his way to retroactively retcon it. And so we can still say that she's always had this backstory that we see in outlander because the clone Wars series didn't actually destroy that. So, if you have anything else, I think we're about ready to jump into spoiler territory, Nathan. Nah, let's do it. All right, so here we go. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. The story starts with us learning that the Tusken Raiders are now on the rampage. They are attacking the settlers of Tatooine. Now, we don't know yet why. We find that out later in the story that essentially this is something that Jabba the Hutt has instigated so that there's conflict between the settlers and the Tuscans so that he can sell a bunch of weapons to the settlers and such. So it's basically all a business venture for him playing both sides and being able to use that to make himself a profit. We start with a actually a rather long sequence on Tatooine where we see the Tuscans attacking a settlement and realize that the leader of this Tuscan band has a lightsaber. We see Aura Singh there, and it's weird because Aura Singh does most of the narration of this story. Most of the time when we see her, she doesn't speak so much as it's almost like she's narrating to the audience over the top. Um, and that leads us into, by the end of the first issue, learning, hey, uh, it looks like this supposed Tuscan war leader is actually Sharad Het, Eth Koth's old Jedi Padawan, and since they can't send Eth Koth after him because they're not sure if he could do what he has to do as far as cutting him down if it became necessary, they're going to send Ki Mundi back to Tatooine, having been there in the previous arc uh, when his daughter was kidnapped and all that. Uh, he is going to be the one sent to try to bring down this Jedi who was believed to have been dead 
well, for 15 years. I want to talk years. about that with you real fast. The, the, the decision to send Kai back there. I mean, okay, all the other masters, they've got their reason why they can't go, but you're going to send someone to a planet that's controlled by a guy who has taken and defiled. Uh, I can't remember the actual word, but, but Kai makes it almost sound like she got raped while she was there. And I'm just like, you're going to send him? Really? Like, this guy's got, like, a, a, a hard-on for the dark side here just waiting to take hold. Like, I mean, I mean, even Yoda says something about, you know, worried about vengeance, but his heart and everything is good. How can you be bent on vengeance and still be pure? I think I, this, this is the aspect of it that, that felt like the writing didn't quite fit with what we're supposed to be getting with, in, with the prequels. Like, I don't know. Where's the, the worry about the dark side here? They, they seem to not, not care. And this seems to be that, that diverge of the EU and what we see in the films. Well, they do say that it's – they specifically are trying to send it because, quote, you're the only member of the council who didn't know Het personally or fight by his side. Only you can be trusted to do what might be required. So there's that sense that he should be able to put his duty above everything else. They, they, what they should have done, though, is said, well, we'll send two of you because while you can do the right thing with Het, we can't really trust you alone on Tatooine. I mean that's – to me, that's like – that's what they should have done in the Jedi aspect. Like – I don't know, it seems weird that we're worried about our interaction with Het, but we don't care about the fact that this guy that runs the planet we're sending you to practically raped your daughter, and you're pretty mad with him still. Like, I don't know, it seems like, who, who's doing the weighing of the scale here morally? Is it Yoda, or is it, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if a little bit of it comes from the fact that Yoda was apparently ill um, during this first issue, so they replaced him with someone who looks very much not like Yoda, or Maybe that's just the artist had a very, very, very hard time apparently drawing Yoda in any realistic way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could see the logical issue here. But then again, we've seen Jedi put in positions where they have to confront something that they should be angry about and have to find a way to overcome it. So I wonder if part of this was to a degree also a test for Key to be able to go back there and do his duty. But yeah, you're right. When it comes to something that, that should be this important, then it does seem a little off. In that well, sense, it, as you say, he should have a. Three. You say he should have a hard on for vengeance. I'm wondering if that was a reference to the shape of his head. Um, and it's funny <laughs> because at one point he does even make a joke um, somewhere. I forget what it is. Something along the lines of, you know, uh, 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 at least they won't make fun of the shape of my head. So I, I, I definitely had to laugh that Tim Truman managed to work that in there. Though I'm not sure if it's just because his head is elongated and different looking, or if he was getting the same feedback back that a lot of us had when we first saw. Well, Hoth is, is it Hoth Ethkoth? Uh, there's a moment where he goes, "It's him." If any Jedi knows the Howl Runner, it is I. Sherard Het was my student, and it, it makes me stop and go. Now, why did we send Kenobi after Vader if we were not going to even send this Master after his failed Padawan? To to me, it would seem like okay if he's your Padawan, and wouldn't that make him your responsibility? Like, well, I, I, yeah, but but we sent they they didn't necessarily send Obi Wan after Vader. Because Anakin had been his Padawan. It was because only Yoda could have any hope against Sidious. It was just the oh, two of true. them in Revenge of the Sith. So, I mean, I could sort of see that. I could see where there would be some hesitation on Ethkoth's part here. It just, you're, you're right, it would have made more sense to send maybe a couple, especially since at this point the Clone Wars aren't going on. It's not like they're spread incredibly thin <laughs> at this point. In fact, repeatedly... You know, we're reminded of the fact that there's only just been the one Sith Lord who has appeared, but we know the Sith are back. But you would think that would mean that the Jedi would spend all their efforts trying to bring in someone like 
Sherrod Het to help them, and yet they still just send the one. I, it well, just that's how Yoda says it. If a follower of the dark side he has become, to the Force you must free him. Of all living Jedi, have only you the skills to defeat Sherrod Het. Really? Really? Then why didn't you bring Kai? Wait, oh yeah, because he's already dead. Uh I mean, I, I just, that, that seems so weird, the way that they put it. Only you have the skills. And, of course, you know, everything seems to be working fine. But then Yoda says, you know, no first one thing. Meet with the one called Jabba you must before searching for this charade. And, of course, this is this is the part where Yoda should have been like, red light, red light, red light. The hut? Jabba the hut captured my daughter. He debased her. And I looked up debased, and that, that's the word that I was just like, wow, that kind of that kind of leans a little towards rape, don't it? <laughs> like, what exactly did he do while he was there with her uh, that made him so angry? I mean, there's a serious rage here, and the fact that none of these Jedi noticed it, I don't know, it's throwing red alarms for me. <laughs> yeah, and he gets the warning, though, before he leaves, as we move into issue number two, he gets a warning from the Dark Woman, who had found him but not been the one who wound up actually training him as a Padawan, who is also... The woman we find as we get towards the end of this arc who trained Aura Singh back when she was originally supposed to be uh, a failed Jedi student and all that. And she basically says, you know, listen to the Force, let it guide your every step and thought. Beware on this world to which you go, Kieti Mundi, beware, which is when he gives his, uh, well, well, as long as no one makes fun of my head comment. But she is, you know, she's already giving him a... A warning about what he will face so maybe it's just a matter of they expect him to be cautious you know that he should be able to do his duty and not put emotion above everything else because that's what a Jedi is supposed to do um, so whatever you know so go on it's okay yeah you're gonna have to confront Jabba but we expect you to be professional and be able to deal with it to not let this bother you and of course when he finally does confront Jabba I found it interesting that he doesn't kiss Jabba's butt. I expected him to show up, because uh, I, I hadn't read this in a very, very long time. Uh, I had half expected him to show up the way that uh, Obi-Wan does when he goes to Jabba in the Clone Wars film. Very deferential, very much, you know, uh, we need your help, we need your uh, permission to do such and such. In that case, it's hyperspace lanes. In this case, it's, you know, um, well, I need your, your safe passage, blah, blah, blah. And he does none of that. You know, he's like, I'll play no games with you, Jabba. You're a slaver, smuggler, liar, and cheater. You made a slave of my daughter and dishonored her. One day you'll pay dearly for your depredations. However, today is not that day. Um, and it's kind of cool to see him. You know, he's not faking this, but he is able to stay professional, so to speak, to what the Jedi are expected to do. And this is while there's another young woman, debased, or whatever you want to call it, sitting there in Slave Leia-style attire right in front of Key. I expected him to perhaps m mention something about that or say something about that, but he doesn't. But they make it a point to have her in a lot of the different shots that we're getting at least somewhat uh, emphasizing Jabba. So that the, the sense is there that, you know, he's still doing what he did to Key's daughter, just with someone else at this point. Yeah, yeah, there's another uh, a question that I had. Uh, the Dark Woman. Now, this is her first official appearance where she's named. I mean, she, she showed up as a background character when he was found in that Yoda short story where he was talking in the Rebellion one, Prelude to Rebellion, I believe. Right? I mean, this 
I don't recall any other time where she shows up and this is like the whole first time she's named as the dark woman or was there another story out there? Because I, I have a hard time with her character showing up and them having no details. They didn't give her a name. They gave her this great backstory as why she has no name and why she's only called the dark woman. But it's like this, that's another one of those characters that just doesn't quite fit from the EU into the films. It's like this character just doesn't quite belong. Well, she was in Vow of Justice, right? The backs, the the secondary story, the whatever you want to call it, the accompanying story for the first arc, for Prelude to Rebellion, and she shows up, of course, in uh, Outlander as it goes along. We slowly but surely learn more about her. We find out her name, for instance, in the Ala Sakura Jedi comic. Uh, Anya Kuro is her name, and she was in Extinction back in the pages of uh, Star Wars Tales. But yeah, she's a character who, at this point, it was like they were saying, we're going to introduce this character, she's going to be mysterious, you're going to wonder about her, you really are going to wonder about her until we finally decide to reveal things. See, 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 here she is again! Um, it was definitely a very heavy-handed use of this character in this era. Uh, but again, this is, we, we got to think in terms of 1999. In terms of prequel-era comics, we're really still near the beginning of all of that. So it would make sense that if they're going to introduce a character and smack us over the head with them because we're supposed to wonder about them for later, they would have to be sometime around this time. The prequel era only gets cluttered the further we get past 1999. Hmm. The other one was uh, Singh. Later, she's going to actually call Het by name. At the beginning, she just says, a Jedi. And then when she's sitting there, she's got her little uh, casket thing, her little briefcase that's got all the lightsabers all uh, seven of them and two of them, there's two slots open. But I I don't know where she figured out the het aspect. There was a lot of those, and that's the issues, you know, I, I said uh, during the spoiler-free part, I was going to be nitpicking. I really enjoyed this one, but there are a lot of those moments that for me, I'm like, I want answers. Like, why is this not lining up? And the only thing I can ever think of is, well, obviously they made it before episode one, and a lot of the stuff that George is coming down and throwing down, they had no clue about. But like the Dark Woman, again, I the, the, the name Dark, it's like that just seems so anti-Jedi. And yet here you're going to give a character, so you're going to go be trained by the Dark Woman. Like, oh, I, I, why, who? Why, why me? Did I get the short straw? I want to be trained by Yoda. I mean, <laughs> it's like, and then you've got Kai being trained by Yoda. It just seems like there's that disconnect. And for me as an EU fan, it seems like, you know, it, this kind of is pushing that era or, or setting the stage for that era. And it's like, well, no wonder the prequel era has such a disconnect because they kind of ran with so many of these concepts and didn't reel them in until much later when they're like, well, we're not ever really going to do anything story-wise to do anything, so let's throw some retcons that way. Well, that's that's basically what they did with Aura Singh. I mean, nothing that they did with Aura Singh was necessarily a direction that Lucas himself dictated or decided. She was a background character showing up briefly, right, during the pod race in Episode 1, and they said, hey, look, that's a cool-looking character. She seems kind of weirdly out of place in that particular scene. Let's use her! And they ran with it and really kind of gave her a lot of her initial characterization here in this story as the Jedi Hunter and all. But she's another one very much like the Dark Woman where it's, you know, they're trying to force her upon us and make us like the character because they're going to be using this character quite a bit. I mean, it's in theory, it's supposed to just be... They're just introducing the character, and the character is going to develop over time. We will get to know them. But it feels somewhat heavy-handed because I think in this era, we were so used to Star Wars stories in other eras and focusing on Luke and Leia and the, the, the X-Wing squadron, Rogue squadron, and all that stuff. 
that any time we're introduced to a lot of new characters in the prequel era, it feels very heavy when they do it. I mean, it's the same thing with Ki-Adi Mundi. I mean, Ki-Adi Mundi, you know, we were just given as the main character starting with Prelude to Rebellion, we had no reason to like the character, to have an interest in the character. In fact, now that we've seen The Phantom Menace, we still have no reason to like or have an interest in the character because he barely says anything in The Phantom Menace. It's one of those, hey, look, it's a character from The Phantom Menace. And you're like, what? It's like whenever they did the uh, the giveaway offer for the toys and you could get an Admiral Akbar figure. He's a big character in Revenge or in Return of the Jedi, which... Uh, and, in, and I guess it was Revenge of the Jedi, uh, the story uh, that was back in, whatchamacallit, in the, the newspaper strips and whatnot. But it's the, the you're going to like him because we tell you to, because isn't it cool? He's from the movie. There's a lot of characters from the movie. There's a lot of background characters you could use. You're choosing this one, and you're expecting us to like it just because he happens to be a background character in the films. And while fans aren't guilty of that a lot of the time... In this case, I think we were much more reticent because this was an era in which, you know, we're seeing the prequels and we're wanting to see Qui-Gon. We're wanting to see more of Anakin. We're wanting to see more of Obi-Wan. We're wanting to see more of, really, Yoda. And instead we get, here's ki Mundi with the weird head. Enjoy. Here's Aura Singh. Enjoy it. I really don't think that we ever hit a point, at least in the Republic comic, and really in any of the comics... Uh, in the prequel era, between when The Phantom Menace was released and shortly after the release of Attack of the Clones, I don't think we ever found characters we could really, really dig until they gave us Ayla Secura and Quinlan Boss. Prior to that, they all feel different. They all feel like there's sort of an antiseptic version of it that we really, we just don't care about the way that we do about so many other stories. I'd be interested to find if there are anyone, if there's anyone out in our audience who remembers reading this at the time and having a huge fondness for or interest in Kiadi Mundi or a Singh or the Dark Woman, or if it was something that was much more an interest they expected of us than an interest we actually had as fans. Because I sure didn't at the time, still don't really mm. now. Well, that's like I said in the spoiler-free part. I mean, for me, the only redeeming thing about this that I really love, you know, why it's a, it's a must-read, but not a, a you-must-read-this book, but if you want to get the more out of the EU, you got to read this one. It's because of Sherard Het and his son. They're the characters that jumped out of the pages for me. But, you know, the little continuity things like, you know, take Aurora Singh's motorcycle bike, her speeder bike that she's got. You know, the first scene that she has when they do the prologue, she's on the one with the skull down on it. Then when the next time we see her, when she's in the bar cantina fight, the other artist steps in. Now she's got one that looks kind of more like what we see in... Uh, in Return of the Jedi, but it's more swoop bike-ish, but it doesn't have that again. But then when she gets buried in the sand uh, during the chase, she comes out, and all of a sudden she's back in the other one again. It's like, man, didn't you guys like make character models and, and have an idea of what this person's going to be writing, or, or are we going to have to... I, I don't know. Again, I get, I, I get to nitpick the heck out of it, because that's what I start to do. And for me, that's where the art got distracting. Uh, you know, you, you'd mentioned that it wasn't that bad for me that it was these little things made it terrible because I really started paying more attention to the art in the background. Uh, and I, I mean, I granted, I didn't realize originally that the artists had changed so drastically. And that's where when when I see the artists, I get confused because, you know, you got the 
art done by, the pencil done by, inks done by, pens done by, all these different ways to talk about who drew it. It's like, uh, so who's doing what? I don't know. I I like Jan Durisma stuff. Uh, you know, it's like, it, for me, the art side of being a Star Wars fan, it's hard for me to throw down whose style I like, because unless you're following the artist and you know that person's style, if you're just grabbing a comic, opening it up, you're not guaranteed to know who you're looking at and who did what panel. Um, you know, I mean, you do a good job of, of following it, Nathan, and therefore it makes it easier for me. But yeah, that speeder bike just drove me up a, up a wall with how it kept changing and switching and all that stuff, you know. But when it gets to the aspect of how, you know, like Singh's backstory could have changed, you know, I was mentioning that about how, you know, Lucas was going to make her non-force sensitive and all that. And the Clone Wars kind of, they never touched it. And I like the fact that they left it alone. Like, yeah, in the global powers universe, Singh doesn't have force sensitivity apparently, but in the EU and in everything else, what we've seen doesn't conflict with what we've got here. So that worked at least. But yeah, I have a lot of little small things. The, the main characters for me in this were the heads. Oh man, you see, as you were saying that, I was flipping through the issues a little bit. And you're right. Not only is he wearing a mask at the end of part two, in the mask, he has apparently his goatee all you know, tied up nice and neat. And then when he's shown without the goatee at the beginning of issue number three, it's all nice and flowing again. And then at the end of issue number three, it's all, you know, just kind of hanging out there when he's in the little trap that is set by Sherrod Het and the Tuscans where he's in there with a crate. And then as soon as they jump to the beginning of issue number four, it's all tied back up again. So I'm assuming that while he was about to face off with the crate, he said, oh, yeah, and he did the little pop-the-collar thing, and then briefly tied up his goatee, and went like, oh, yeah, now you mess with the wrong Jedi. And he was kind of doing the whole getting ready to fight thing, like you see in a lot of, uh, uh, of boxing movies and that sort of thing. It's the equivalent to, you know, taping up his hands and getting ready or something, because, yeah, that just does not make a whole lot of sense. This, th Yeah, you're right. The whole sandstorm's just as bad because every one of the thugs, they have masks and goggles on, and then as soon as the art changes, only three of them have masks, and of those three, only one's got goggles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, this definitely had to be something where they just had the one story written, but they farmed it out to these different uh, pencilers. What often happens if we see an artistic change in a comic these days tends to be that, well, we had a comic going and an artist was overloaded by a workload on something else or was late on an issue, so we brought in somebody to do the filler art on a single issue. But even then, you tend to have the earlier art to work with. My guess here is that this, and this is purely a guess, but a logical guess, I think, um, this must have been being produced simultaneously. This must have been here, we're going to farm out each of these issues to different teams or a couple of people per, or a couple of issues per team, and they're all going to create the art at once so we can make sure that this gets out right after the film when we want it to. And the result is a story where the continuity of the story itself is solid. But yeah, the artwork uh, is is different. It's, but it's the nitpicky things. The style of artwork, that's the, that's the weird thing to me. The style of artwork isn't so drastically different that it throws you off. That's what I was saying about how it kind of doesn't feel like the kind of stuff we got in, say, Knights of the Old Republic or in Knight Errant. Yeah, but when you look at those little details, yeah, the little details certainly are different as you go through it. And it's not a different that has any kind of accounting for it. In any event, though, we, we make our way through. He finds, he gets a, a skiff from Jabba, gets sent into a sandstorm, 
winds up surviving that, finds his way, he winds up fighting some rats at the end of an issue, like these gigantic New York City sewer system rats, um, and then winds up facing off briefly with a crate dragon when he falls into a trap that is not really a trap for him so much as a trap for the crate, because it's supposed to be Sharad Het's son, Asherad Het's rite of passage type of event, uh, where he has to be the one to kill the crate dragon. And this is what finally brings them into contact with each other, and we find that basically Sharad Het, at one point, he was he was questioning what the Jedi were doing anyway. He wasn't sure if he was on the right path. Because he was someone who, like Anakin Skywalker, was taken very, very much as a child, not as an infant. Um, he had had enough time to get to know his family when he was taken away for Jedi training. Um, he winds up serving with Eeth Koth. He winds up being sort of a super Jedi, does a great job as a Jedi, defending the peace, etc., etc. But he's always questioning these things. And we see these great, this great series of flashbacks in which you find that he finally is given a leave of absence to go home to quell his doubts and see his family, only to get there and find that uh, there had been an, a group of off-world rivals who attacked the homeworld and razed pretty much every major city on the planet, leaving his family dead. And his comment essentially is that his whole life had been a sham as a Jedi, because what use are Jedi powers if he can't use them to save his family? Which caused him to leave, crashing on Tatooine, where he was found by the Tusken Raiders and eventually became part of their group. And we'll find that he is someone who, uh, he is the War Master. When there are these attacks on the Settlers, he is the one that's doing it. But it's because of the number of dead Tuscans already. It's a form of vengeance that is part of their culture. But he's the one who's trying to keep it from essentially being a random slaughter. He's trying to keep it very directed, very controlled, so that it's still filling that cultural imperative for the Tuscans but at the same time not devolving into something that winds up decimating both sides on Tatooine, uh, the way that presumably Jabba wants so that he can sell more and more and more weapons as things go along. I found Sharad's story to be interesting, but since we only get to see him here, it really doesn't have as much of an impact as some of the other backstories we get for characters. And ironically, Asherad Head's background is told in much the same way, when we wind up seeing his background in Legacy, when we find that Darth Krayt's backstory is being told, it's much like this. It's flashbacks, it's him trying to get away from something, it's uh, him being in uh, desperate situations in a couple of situations where he is found by those who will sort of shape his destiny and such. I find that there's an interesting parallel now, reading this, having now seen Asherod's backstory as Darth Krayt in Legacy. Although, again, it's... It's not a story that I get into as much as many others because it still feels all detached. Nothing about these characters, these situations, this artwork, this era of Star Wars comics grabs me the way that the later era will or that the slightly earlier era did. It was as if, as The Phantom Menace came out, I remember there was so much marketing going on that it felt much more like a blitz of marketing and a blitz of publishing than it did a blitz of stories. So there's always that detachment for me for some reason. My perception is clouded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see what you're saying with that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here just enjoying some of the art. <laughs> I see some because the the art where they're fighting the Krayat dragon, that art style, it, that's a little 
more cartoony than I enjoy. Um, it's not bad art. It's just, you know, a little bit different than I accustomed to. Um, I, I, again, I, I go back to, I really enjoy head. I, I like the backstory, the backstory of this character more so because like, I, I look at it as this is Ashrod Head's origin story. And the best way to get to know a character sometimes is to get to know the parent that they've been raised by. And in this case, you know, Het by Het, I mean, Ashrod was a lot like Anakin. Uh, we'll see that in another arc coming down the road where, you know, they were both older when they brought, got brought in. Cause this is basically how he ends up becoming part of the order. By the time it's all said and done, he goes with Kai to train. Uh, his tribe gets all but wiped out, which we learn about again in Kenobi. Uh, that's well, how these. And, and if I may, the the way he agrees to go with Key to train as a Jedi feels very much out of the blue. It feels very disjointed with the rest of the story because it's all been about the Tuscan traditions, Tuscan this, Tuscan that. He's raised by the Tuscan Raiders, and instead, now we get as soon as his father dies. Right where and and this is his father's even saying, and you Asherad, what will you do? There are many Tuscan tribes in the desert. Will you seek them out and join them? To which Asherad replies, "My clan is dead. My bantha is gone. I will have no others. The Jedi shall be my clan now and forever. I will go with Kiati money to Coruscant. The Force shall guide my way from there." And you know, that feels like a really fast about face on this. Um, I guess it's meant to sort of be very much like Luke in A New Hope, right? It's the, uh, uh, Ben wants him to go to Alderaan with them, but Luke isn't willing to go. But, oh wait, now that Aunt Brew and Uncle Owen are dead, you know, I want to be a, uh, learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father and all that stuff. You know, there's nothing for me here now and all of that. But instead, it feels very abrupt. It feels more like Anakin turning to the dark side in Revenge of the Sith uh, and pledging himself to, to Sidious without having read the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Or it feels like uh, I recently had a chance to watch through the 8mm version of A New Hope. It was basically two 8mm Super 8 uh, film reels that were both about 17 minutes long or so, and each one was half of A New Hope, and they were combined together into an abbreviated version of A New Hope that ran about 35 minutes or so. Okay, And at that in that version, basically Luke says, uh, Luke asks about, you know, uh, the, the Jedi and everything. We see the recording of Princess Leia. We have Obi-Wan say, oh, you must learn the ways of the Force if you have to come with me to Alderaan. At which point, uh, Luke's like, Alderaan? And then it immediately jumps to, you must do what you feel is right, of course, and then boom! They're already going into Mos Eisley to look for a ship. In the 8mm version, you don't see anything about the death of Owen or Beru at all. It is excised from the story. That's what this feels like. It feels very abrupt that there should have been at least some question in his mind about what to do. There's not enough development of Asherod Het throughout this arc to give you any sense that this is a decision he would be coming to, except out of absolute desperation. Yet at the end, he speaks so confidently about it, it sounds like a decision that he has made previously, and that it's not desperation, this is the way he wants to go, almost like Anakin wanting to get off Tatooine and become a Jedi. The, the, the transition there of his character doesn't jive for me. I mean, I get that's where they were trying to go, I get that's what they want to do with the character, but it feels like they stumbled in doing so. See, for me, this it feels like Luke and Leia in Return of the Jedi, where 
Luke tells her, you know, you're my sister. And she's just like, I know somehow I've always known. It's like, she's so quick to just throw away her entire life with Bale and her mom. Because I mean, like, did they always tell her, Hey, you've never been our kid. You know, I mean, she just quickly just, Oh yeah. Yeah. These people, they did, they're not my parents. Like she's so quick to throw that life away. For me, it was the moment when Singh is going after Het's dad, and she's already shot him in the shoulder, and she's coming at him with the lightsabers. She clubs him in the head with a rock and stabs him through the the chest, you know, and she's about to kill him. And I, for me, I, I see it, at least, this, I mean, and it's not written on the page. It's kind of how I rationalize it. But Het's watching his dad fighting with the lightsaber, going up against someone else with a lightsaber, and basically someone with force use, a Jedi student, bested his dad so you know he needs to go and, and learn the one thing that he hasn't had the formal training of his dad's been training him but he just hasn't got the full one so maybe that's what now what his destiny is but th- getting back to those really bad moments here that, that just drive me up a wall uh when she's about to stab sherard head kai and asherard head show up and kai goes stop drop your weapon and she turns hello jedi and he's like you and then she goes, I recognize you too, Kayadamundi, my teacher's friend. You showed me tricks with the lightsaber. As you will see, I've remembered them well. And he goes, Aurora Singh, a student of my friend, the Jedi Master who some call the Dark Woman. I'm like, what, the, what is this? Why? Why? Why do we have a character that we have to describe as who some call the Dark Woman? I mean, it's like... The whole plot of that character is just so cheesy that the application of it ruins the dialogue of this comic. It's like every time they refer to the Huts as vile gangsters. Okay, (laughs) it was in the crawl. We get it. Can we please stop using it over and over again? It's, yeah, again, clumsy writing in general. I would say that at this point, I think that this sums up my thoughts on, I think, Republic at this point very easily, back before it became Republic. Prior to the Clone Wars era, the shift in creative teams and the shift in folks and the shift in time frame for this series, it was a decent series. It eventually becomes a good series and has moments where it's great. Right now, it's decent. I wouldn't even necessarily call it good yet, at least relative to what uh, what else we would expect. For those who have read later stuff in Republic who are thinking, you may go back and read this because, hey, it'd be cool to read where that series came from in a different era, do not expect the same quality level overall. And I don't know if it's because of just the glut of stuff being put out around The Phantom Menace. I mean, I look at the back of the individual issues and what are they advertising? Uh, one thing that's advertised on the backs of three of the issues is the episode one, The Phantom Menace, game for PC and PlayStation, and that was a piece of garbage. Um, and that's kind of the same thing, where it's it's the Phantom Menace. We must hit it. We must, 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 must do stuff tied into the prequels now. Must, must, must. Even if it's not all that great, and even if it feels rushed, and even if we don't know quite what the hell we're doing yet. Yeah. Are, are we entering into another one of those? Sequel trilogy! Sequel trilogy! Sequel trilogy! Sequel trilogy! Sequel trilogy! Oh, I found the sequel trilogy! As we have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to continue... Well, our, <laughs> But we're sort of doing that now, right? Because we know that the EU may wind up finding itself dashed aside by the sequel trilogy because it isn't going to necessarily have to adhere to any previous Expanded Universe stuff after Return of the Jedi. And what are we getting a glut of now? It's the accessible, accessible, accessible. See, you don't have to have known anything. You don't have to have known anything. We promise, we promise, we promise. 
like the relatively continuity uh, absent and sometimes continuity clashing Star Wars Volume 2, and as I mentioned in our previous uh, episode, uh, the arc right now that I'm in the process of reading for Razor's Edge, um, I'm almost to the end of it. No, it hasn't taken me you know, over a week to read 50 pages. We're recording this the same day we recorded our episode about Kenobi. Um, there's nothing in that book that ties it into anything else but the films. Um, and that seems to be the approach they want to take right now. And I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, they were already leaning in that direction, but now with the sequel trilogy, it's just kind of all full speed ahead Let's tell a bunch of classic era stories that don't necessarily connect to anything and all feel like they could have been the first thing written after you've seen the films. It's this this instance in which, and I know it's a business. I mean, publishing is a business. Uh, these people are being paid to do this. It is their job. I think the most stark example of that we saw in Star Wars was way back whenever we got the comments from Karen Travis, you know, talking about how you know she has to make a business decision to leave or to stay and has to make that well in advance. It's not about the passion that the fans put into it per se. It is a business. And from a business standpoint, the glut of materials with certain aspects, whether we're talking about making it accessible or wrap it around these movies, makes perfect sense. Um, just as from a business perspective, although from financial perspective, it's kicking my butt, um, especially with all these bills and stuff that have been hitting us recently, the fact that they're dropping six new home video releases of Star Wars stuff in October. Makes sense. Give people options. Sell more stuff. Build on it. Um, from the standpoint of story or for practicality for fans, sometimes it misses the mark because those are not always two goals that entirely coincide. Sometimes they are directly at odds. And I think in this case, it was something where they weren't totally at odds. But trying to tell a story that fans would really get into and trying to tie everything into the Phantom Menace or tie it into that era as much as possible was causing them to hit a little short of the mark. Uh, if it was darts, they're landing a couple of inches apart. They're still generally in the same area, but not exactly... What's the word I'm looking for? Around the bullseye? Yeah, there you go. Around the bullseye. <laughs> you know, and another thing, the last page that gets me here... Uh, you know, dying father, he turns to son. Take this Ashrod, built by my own hands, as my master Ethkoth watched. Do not use it in anger or for vengeance. Promise me this. It's like, weren't you just uh, using it in your little war tribe raids there not too long ago? Oh, wait, that's right. You were doing it to prevent the loss of life. Because you knew the Tuscans were bloodthirsty savages, and so you were making sure that they kept that bloodthirstiness in check, and everyone that died were just accidents. Oh, okay. Yeah, way to justify your dark use of the force there, Head. But, but the other one, though, is that, uh, you know, he turns to Kai, dad, and he goes, What say you, Kai Adamundi? Since his birth, I have raised Asherard Het as a Jedi. He is my Padawan. Will you accept him as yours and finish his training? It would be an honor, Sherard Het. I'm curious, did the uh, council give Mundi as hard a time with his Padawan as they did Kenobi? I mean, you know, apparently it's okay for this Jedi to, on deathbed, give a Padawan away. But not so for Obi-Wan, because he's still too green behind the ears. Yeah, I did find that parallel kind of interesting. You know, the, the you must train the boy, you know. At least there's no, he is 
the chosen one kind of stuff, because then there would have to be the competition between Asherod and Anakin, which one really is the chosen one. And we know they're going to meet each other because they're going to wind up encountering each other, as we see, and I believe it's Emissaries to Malastair, the very next storyline, we see Anakin and Asherod meeting briefly uh, when Anakin is at the temple. But yeah, it just seems like it's Spike and Angel of uh, Angel Season 5. I'm the chosen one. No, I could be. I'm a vampire with a soul, too. Wow. Yeah. It just... It makes for an interesting ending, and you wonder if the purpose of the story was the end of Asherad, the character development for Kiati, or getting, uh, excuse me, for Sherrod, uh, getting Asherad off of Tatooine. Because Asherad does play a role as things go on, but he never really plays a giant role, or a role that makes him really stand out until he becomes Darth Krayt, and then later we realize who he is, and now it's like, oh man, there's all this cool backstory, he is so important now. Kind of like Boba Fett, you know? Boba Fett shows up and they're like, ooh, nifty, he's cool to look at. But then they give him all this backstory that gets people very much interested in the character, but not because of what they saw on screen initially, but because of this other backstory that's been given to him and his culture. Asherod, you know, without becoming Darth Krayt, Asherod is just a character that would fade from memory and be a piece of Republic that really didn't go much of anywhere. His now likeness he, to Anakin was his one claim to fame, really. I mean, that's what drew me originally. Pretty much. He, he's one of those characters that, you know, yeah, as Darth Krayt, I, I enjoyed him a lot more. Like you said, there is that wealth of little stories he was always there in. Uh, but I, I like the character. I like the parallels especially. I mean, you know, when we get to the Battle of Salacia uh, I'm probably saying it wrong, but when he's fighting alongside Kakarot and stuff, I mean, that was, that was a fun series. I was really enjoying that. And... I think for me, when that when Republic hit that stride, that was like the golden age of the Republic line. Um, there were a lot of stories that were told there that you were kind of like, man, I hope they come back and tell more of, of what happened in this battle and that kind of stuff, which they never really did. But that was one of the things from the comic side of things that they create their own universe in and unto themselves that you could put books in. I mean, you know, I mean, these, you know, look at that, the Battle of Salacicrum, you know, when you've got all these different clones of uh oh what were they the nikto i believe and you know i mean there was a huge war going on right there you could easily slide an eu book in there at some point and you can use kakrak you could use ashrard het uh but that that's the world building that you get later but you know you when you look at it from this point you know you want to say oh well they've had a plan the whole time i mean obviously look at i mean the character he ends up going it's like it was pure luck (laughs) that's that's the thing that cracks me up is like once again, like it's the Namanor moment. Like, hey, we got this character here you could use for this other series. <laughs> I mean, it worked out great, but there's a part of me that's like scratching my mind going, you know, did Ostrander, like, did, did he have this? Was there like a far out goal that he wanted to create a Jedi that would later become a. a was there any part of this that was planned or, or a pipe dream of somebody's? But this isn't even Ostrander. This is Tim Truman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, so. It's all pure luck. And and then you're just like, at what point did someone sit down and go, hey, there could be a bigger story here. I mean, and that, that had to have been Ostrander. Yeah, but I mean, that again, that is sort of the Star Wars way. I mean, Lucas decided a lot of things that were part of his vision for the Clone Wars. But if you go back even looking at things like, oh, take a, the classic trilogy, he had at one point uh, waffled on whether or not to make Vader Luke's father and whether or not to make... Uh, Luke and Leia's siblings, and should uh, Lando die, should Han die, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it just seems as though 
a lot of this is, you know, it's taking advantage of what is there before. If if we hadn't seen Darth Crate have an origin that goes back to some previous thing we saw in the EU, we'd be complaining that, you know, here he is, he just kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, it's it's going to be something where, I guess it's always better to tie things together than not, but certainly it doesn't seem like they had any plans at the time. Um, what strikes me is one thing, and I, I think this might be a good question to end on, a rhetorical question, which is that given the precedent set in this story for the way that you name your children as Tusken Raiders, shall we assume then that Tusken Raider families generally die off after a couple of generations? Because in theory, if Asherod Het had stayed on Tatooine, had children, who had children, who had children, who had children, wouldn't that mean that a few generations down the line we would have someone named Asherod Het? Because everybody just gets a new A and apostrophe in front of their name? That's what it is. That's what it is. It's not Revenge of the Nerds. Okay? It's not a war cry. The one that was. He's trying to say his name, but he never gets to the end of it before he's scared away. I'm the fifth generation son of a. Hey, you cut off my scene. <laughs> uh, Open up and say, ah, 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 ah. Oh, that's great. Well, one thing I will say right before we leave, though, is is another bullet dodged was when Sherard dies, we don't see him turn into one of the force. He, uh, his clothes and him are still left behind. At least it looks like his toe is pointing up and that it's not just empty clothes that he left behind like little monsters in the light. That is true, and of course, that's another thing in keeping with Episode 1. See, see, a Jedi died and didn't fade away. It wasn't just Qui-Gon. There's a reason for it. George, please give us a reason for it. Well, that's where I, that's where I question when this was made. It's like, okay, would that be one of those that, I, I assume they got lucky. I really don't think that, you know, they had any, I don't think they sat down and saw the movie. I don't think when this came out, when it was drawn, when it was story written, all that, they had zero clue what was going on. Again, it came out after the movie, but I don't think that in the creative process of this, they had a clue what was going on in the film. Uh, I think they got no, lucky. No, I'll, I'll give them more credit than that because there was a comic adaptation of the film and there was a novelization of the film, plus the youth novel, plus those little youth journals. Obviously, they had given the licensees at least an earlier draft of the script for The Phantom Menace. Surely this was written with them having at least some knowledge of that, even if it was just the basic knowledge of what they actually needed as opposed to having read the entire script. I cannot imagine them going into this utterly blind to The Phantom Menace. That, that I think, stretches credulity. So it must have been Lucas that was utterly blind to what they were doing. I mean, think about this. Uh, uh, we've got two Anakins out here. Uh, we got to kill one. We can't have any confusion. Oh, uh, we got two kids that came from Tatooine that became Jedi. Oh, uh, yeah, let it slide. Yeah, but one of them's not the chosen one, so it's okay. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys once again for hanging with us as we ponder on sharing in the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes. They're streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. You can also find those episodes on iTunes. It's a place we strongly encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and the Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at 
SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before you go, we wanted to mention once again our sponsor, Audible. Uh, if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free Audible book and a trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the EU or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate. That's because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to an audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. That's right. And if you get the opportunity, be sure to check out that Amazon.com shop that my wife and I run. It is Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Got some cool sci-fi stuff in there, some older Barbie stuff that came from an old collection of hers, quite a bit of items on there. And, of course, every little bit uh, helps as we sell those, get them out of here, and uh, put some of that cash towards bills and, well, the massive, massive amount of home video stuff that this film is dropping on us right now. <laughs> That's right. And you can also help us directly, even, if you go to www.starsreport.com support to find out more. Uh, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that they were actually planning to do anything with Asherah Head after this arc. Or the odds that Kai Adamundi was a character that they were going to do within the films. Because I, I don't know about you, but it seems like Dark Horse thought they were doing something with him. one thing I forgot to even mention while we were doing this was the covers themselves. Um, you know, I have the trade paperback of this, and mine actually has fallen apart, the binding. This is one of the few trade paperbacks that that happened with. But uh, the covers on these are just hideous. I, I, I just don't like how one of them. Like, I think the closest one I like is the one where it's just got the Tuscan mask, and even that, I just, uh, the style was not my cup of tea. The covers were alright. I mean, they were a little bit different, but they certainly captured the feel of the story. In particular, I like the, the cover to, I guess, the fourth part that shows, I suppose it's supposed to be Sharad Het there. Um, although it's a little bit odd that we can see his eyes through the lenses of his Tuscan eyepieces because we don't within the rest of the story for the most part. Well, yeah, I see, and I thought that was Sharad himself. That was the one, yeah, the, the one that is the only decent one of the two. Um, but yeah, the, the lenses are gone there. Because they do have a couple scenes there where you can see through his le- lens when he's talking to uh, Kai about being a, being dead. So am I. Seeing through his eyes. But yeah, I just, I don't know. The, the, the art style of this kind of reminds me of uh, the, the Tolkien uh, calendars. <laughs> I just It doesn't really feel as Star Wars to me. It does feel a little fantasy, but you know, not, not sci-fi. Long one I'll tell you what I want. That's right, Whistler. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, I'm saying the wrong part. I was gonna say, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? <laughs> it's 
all your fault, Whistler. I blame you, you little bastard. <laughs> It's like, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, be in the right location of the show notes will help very much. That's true, which we don't get any explanation. Or explanation. Excuse me, I was trying to fight a burp as I was saying that, and my words just got tripped over the belch, <laughs> apparently. Um. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyondians. <laughs> Why am I reading two words ahead? Consider this your... Spoilers, guys! Spoilers! <laughs>